Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Robert Renke. Well, fuck this. Fuck all of this shit. Fuck this fucking job that I hate. Fuck this fucking therapy. You know what? I need to figure out what I want to do on my own. Just fuck it. That and more. But first, listen, can you think of something that you have a strong visceral reaction to that most people don't? Does that bring a memory to mind or a few memories to mind that you might make into a story? Or can you think of something that isn't usually special to people, but that's really special to you? Well, pitch us your stories. All you need to know is at risk-show.com slash submissions. We'll be right back. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. 
Now here's the show. Folks, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Rafter, behind me now, aka Rafter Roberts, who created that brand new Risk opening theme song that you heard only seconds ago. Now, you may be thinking, whoa, Risk has a new opening theme song? Yep. In this, our 15th year, we thought we'd freshen things up a bit around here. So we're calling this week's episode Fresh Starts. And in a little bit, we'll have a conversation with Rafter himself. But before that, a story from Robert Ranke, whose memoir, Falling Off the Catwalk, is available on Amazon and who you can find at robertranke.com. Now, as you will hear, not only are there some amazing photographs of Robert in the 90s, but he kept some amazing audio footage from that era too. So, without further ado, here is Robert now with a story we call Born Again and Again. It's 1991, and I've been drinking all night long. And I show up to work at Hewlett Packard, and I run into my hiring manager, Patty. And she says, hey, you know, I'm trying to get a cup of coffee. And she says, hey, hey Robert, you know, how are you doing? And I say, oh, Patty, I'm great. And as a matter of fact, you know, I'm still drunk. And she, does, she doesn't like that at all. You know, she tells me that I need to sit down right there where I'm at and she's gonna get my manager. And she she contacts him, Bill, and he comes down with a card. And on the card is the name of a therapist. And he tells me, you have three options right now. One option is that we check you into outpatient. Another option is that uh, you go to this therapist. And the third option is that we fire you. So I go, okay, well, uh, I think that the therapist idea is a good one. (laughs) 
and they let me drive home. They ask if I'm okay. I get my Jeep. I drive home. And the first thing, of course, I do is to drink as much vodka as I possibly can drink. And I drink and I drink and I drink until I just fall on the floor and just hold my gut because the vodka is not fucking working anymore. And I'm only left with feeling horrified and ashamed. Shame because, you know, I, I my life should be perfect. You know, I'm 27 years old. I have this great condo in Encinitas by the beach. You know, I have, you know, these really hot girlfriends that, you know, start out really well at first, but then kind of fade away. And, you know, I have this great job as a plastics buyer at Hewlett Packard. Although, you know, I'm, I'm really an artist in my soul, but, you know, I, I need the job because uh, I have to have the health insurance. You know, I'm, I'm this surfer dude, and, and particularly I have this weird thing called a cholesteatoma in my ear. And that means that if, uh, if I don't clean out the ear with an expensive otolaryngologist every six months, it starts to pus, it starts to ooze, it starts to black gunk comes out and I, I have to end up with a surgery. So he has to actually dig in there with something that's kind of like a dental prick, metal, and kind of scrape out the ear canal. So I, I have to have the uh, health insurance. So I, I think, okay, I gotta keep this job, I gotta go to the therapist. So I go to the therapist and she says right off the bat, Robert, you're an alcoholic, the first thing you need to do is you need to get sober. And then after you're sober for a year, you need to, you can come back or go to another therapist and then we're going to work out the deeper issues. So I decide that's a, that's a fine idea. And I do, I get sober with AA for a year and, you know, I show up back to the therapist and we start, you know, digging into stuff like, why is it that I have hard-ons for, you know, my best surfing buddy, Danny? Yeah, Danny you know, comes over and I teach him how to surf and then he hangs out on my waterbed in just his underwear and, and I can't sleep. I mean, and, and it's not just Danny that I've had hard-ons for. I've had hard-ons for a lot of other guys throughout the years. But, you know, this is 1992. This is moving up through the height of HIV, right? It'll be all-time record deaths in 1995. So coming out isn't an easy process. So she has me sit in the office and close my eyes and meditate. Imagine that there's a woman in one room to my right and a man in another room to my left. And she says, okay, now, if you're sexually arise, where would you like to go? Where would you go? And you know, I, I, I become terrified. I'm like, well, I can't say that I'd go with the man. Yeah, and besides this, I consider myself a born-again Christian at the time. There's like no way that I'm going to go to the man. So, you know, I, I just say, of course, I, I go to the woman. I finish the session, I get into my Jeep, start driving home, and I have to pull over to the side of the road because I am horrified. I'm horrified because I realize that I really want to go into the man room. You know, and I want that man to be Danny. And at that moment, I just say, well, fuck this. Fuck all of this shit. Fuck this fucking job that I hate. Fuck this fucking therapy. You know what? I need to figure out what I want to do on my own. I, 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 I don't want to go through a therapist. I don't want this job. I don't want this, this fucking expensive condo. I don't want all these expenses. I'm always in debt anyhow. Just fuck it. Get me the fuck out of here. 
And I get home and start to get out of everything. Unfortunately, the first thing I start to get out of is my sobriety. So I start drinking again. And then I look for every possible fucking way I can to get out of Hewlett Packard as a plastic spire. And nothing works. Nothing really works at first. So I'm still dating women. And my last girlfriend ever, Shelby, is an amateur photographer. And she says, take some pictures of me. And she says, you know, these pictures are kind of good, Robert. You know, why don't you consider taking these into a modeling agency? And I'm like, okay. So I take the pictures she took into a modeling agency in San Diego, and they they take me. Yeah, so I, I go, okay. I take the pictures then up the coast, Orange County, they take me. And then they start sending me to these test photographers that can build up, you know, a portfolio of pictures to show to clients. And I'm going to test photographers. Now, the whole while, of course, I'm still at work with Hewlett Packard, but I'm putting the little light on it, my my cubicle and putting binders everywhere so that it looks like I'm actually in a meeting or something. And I'm going off for four hours to test to go see the agents. And they have a gym on campus there and I work out so that I can get my body really, really, really tight. And so they finally sent me to a test photographer who is extraordinary because he's worked actually in Milan. And he takes these photos and I bring them into my agents and the agents just say to me, Robert, if if you really want to make it in this industry, then you're going to need to go to Europe. You're not going to be as successful here in San Diego or Orange County as, you know, you might be able to be given the potential of what you could do. So I'm like, okay, well, this is an option. So I ask for a two-week vacation from Hewlett Packard, which is granted, and I put all of my personal stuff into storage, and I give the keys of my Jeep Wrangler to a friend of mine, Tiffany, and I say, listen, Tiff, if I don't come back, you just make the payments on this, okay? It's your Jeep. And I give the keys to the condo to a real estate agent, and I say, hey, just rent this out if I call you, okay? And I hop on a flight to Paris. The agencies, I have an agency, so they set up these great appointments with these top-ranked agencies in Paris. And I go to these agencies with my pictures, and they actually say the consensus is, Robert, you know, these pictures are exceptional. But the rule of thumb is this. It's Milan, Paris, New York you need to have a bigger book to to even consider seeing clients over here. So you need to go to Milan first. I'm like, okay, wow, a week of my vacation is off. I'm on vacation with HP. I'm like, get the fuck on a train and go to Milan. What the fuck? I've never been to Milan. I've never been to Italy. I'll just go. So I show up, I, you know, I take the train, I get into a hotel, I start calling agencies, I get an appointment with an agency for the next day. And then I call another agency called uh, Ugly People. And Ugly People is like this premier agency of the top men in the world at the time. They just have 25 men, only men, they don't represent women. And these are the men that you would see in GQ or Details Magazine. And so I call up Ugly People and the head booker Calvin happens to answer the phone. And Calvin says, you know, okay, so where are you coming from? I said, well, I'm coming from Paris. And he says, well, do you have any appointments? And Calvin's a very astute, sharp-witted, competitive businessman. You can tell he just knows his shit. 
and he says to me, he goes, uh, okay, you have an appointment with this, and it happens to be his primary competitor. So he's like, uh, you're going to come in and see me now. I said, what? I mean, I just got off the train. I said, I, I've got a baseball cap on. I'm dirty. I'm sticky. It's muggy. I can't come down. He says, darling, I can see beneath the dirt. You will see me now. I'm like, okay, got it. So I grab my map and I get on the various buses. I don't, I can't speak Italian. I'm completely lost. People help me out and tell me they're all happy. I'm going to do it somehow. And then I get there and, uh, I, you know, I walk into this agency and there definitely on the walls are these gorgeous men that I've seen in GQ. Like there's this big table in the middle with a lazy Susan that spins around. And there are bookers sitting all around this table and they're speaking in English and they're speaking in Italian and they're booking things and spinning the lazy Susan to pull out, you know, appointments and comp cards and things like that. It's really active. And I say, well, I'm here to see Calvin. And they say, okay, well, we'll go get him. And they get him and he, he greets me and escorts me back to his fabulous office, you know, with the view of a park. And he says, okay, um, take off your shirt and turn around. Now, I'm a corporate, you know, Hewlett Packard surfer dude with an MBA, you know, I've not had an experience like this in a business setting. I mean, we have meetings with suppliers and stuff over plastic. So I'm like, okay, but you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm in, I'm in on this, you know, I'm in for this. What the fuck else am I doing? I'm in the middle of fucking Milan, you know, let's go. So I, I rip off my shirt and, and spin around and and mind you, you know, I'm, I'm confident in my body at this point in time, right? I'm a surfer workout. But there's this huge, huge chasm of a disconnect between my body on the outside and how I feel on the inside. It's, it's like I have this shell and the pieces inside, I don't know how they go together. I don't know how it works. I have zero self-esteem. I have no sexual awareness. I do not understand how the body operates or how I operate or who I am. So uh, I, I, I hold it together in this place that's so big while I'm feeling so, so small, right? This world is so big. I'm, I don't know what the fuck, but I hold it together. And I look at him and he's happy. He's happy with what he sees. And he brings in his right-hand man, Manuela. They speak in Italian. They look at me and I'm in. I got the book, meaning that they get this plastic portfolio out and they take my pictures. They put my pictures in the book and they say, this is what you're to do. You're gonna call us in the morning. You're gonna call us in the afternoon and in the evening. And we're gonna tell you what castings to go to, what callbacks you might have, what jobs you might have every day. This is your job. I'm like, okay. I got it. I got signed with ugly people. I think I like Milan a lot more than Paris. I'm stoked. Thank you, God. I go back to my hotel and the next day I call and start showing up to castings. I start running into other models and one of the first models that I run into is uh, Marlboro Man. This is Marlboro Country. 
the former Marlboro Man, who was a, a model with ugly people. He had been the Marlboro Man like 10 years before, and right now he, he was kind of semi-bloated a little bit, you know, drinking for 10 years, semi-retired, and living in Los Angeles, actually. But he had decided to come back and to Milan to, you know, kind of freshen up his book and get some jobs maybe and do things like that. And so he had all these go seats already scheduled with these very important people. And he kind of takes me under his wing. And well, one of the first things though he asked me is, you know, he, he asked me if I was gay. And I said, no, I'm straight. You know, he said, oh, well, I would have taken you for gay. And I'm, I'm horrified and offended at, at this time because I know that the homophobia is just rampant and I don't want to come out and I don't know what I am. So. I say I'm straight and he he's good with that. He you know, he takes me to his favorite restaurants and we go drinking grappa, this Italian liqueur, all afternoon. And I'm fucking crashing, getting drunk, smoking cigarettes, of course Marlboro, right? <laughs> Come to where the flavor is. Smoking Marlboro's, drinking grappa, and crashing his go-sees. And everybody's having a good time with him because he has this big thick book, and I'm the new guy in the block with this tiny little book and and we're having a good time. And, and you shouldn't be crashing his castings at all. This is a no-no, but I'm already kind of breaking rules, bad boy. And then I meet another model named Wolf from Hamburg. And Wolf starts hanging out with us and Wolf says, hey, Robert, you know, there's this uh, model residence called the Juicy. And the Juicy is where only models from top agencies can live and it's just basically a uh, hostel for models. And he says, it's a lot cheaper for you to be a roommate with me than, uh, you know, staying in the hotel, you want to be my roommate. And he's straight as can be too. Um, and so I go, yeah, well, that sounds like a good idea. So I move out of the hotel, I move into the Juicy. It's this, you know, seven stories tall. It's like a dorm to me, right? In college, I feel like. So I, I kind of move into this persona that I had when I was in college, which they called me Bong Hit Bob. You know, and I never had sex in college. I mean, I never had sex till I was 24 years old. I was just the happy-go-lucky dude that everybody liked, and I was a threat to no one, right? No one felt threatened by me. I was not into anybody. I was just bong hit bop. So I take on this persona, and I go to these castings for the next few days, and people are being responsive to me. You know, the photographers are liking the pictures, the editors are risk-reacting, I get a couple callbacks, and guess what? It's, it's the end of my fucking vacation. It's the last fucking day of my vacation at Hewlett-Packard. I have to make a decision, like, what the fuck am I gonna do? Do I stay here and be a model? Or do I go back to work as a plastics buyer? See, I mean, it's, it's tough because I'm of two minds. I mean, I need the health insurance. And the job with Hewlett Packard is stable, whereas modeling, I mean, the agency takes 60%. And the jobs, you would never know when they come or they don't come. It's a tough choice, really. And I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. Basically, did I want to get my ear fucked or did I want to get fucked? Did I want to go back to the feeling I had out of therapy, which is like, fuck this life. I need to find out who I am. I have to have experiences. Or do I need the stability and the health insurance? I don't know. So I, you know, I'm a Christian at this time. So I decided I'm going to get down on my knees and pray. 
And I've taped this all, by the way. I have a VCR recorder, and I've taped myself doing this. And so I get down on the floor, and I pray to Jesus, and I'm like, Dear God, dear Jesus Christ, Jesus, please show me the way. You know, I can be a witness to you in this this horrible agency thing. I can I can bring models to Jesus. You know, <laughs> give me a sign, right? So I finish the prayer, and I think you know I'm going to call my boss at Hewlett Packard because there is a third option. And the third option is that I could negotiate for a 28-day leave of absence. And I think, I'm going to just get the boss, I'm going to talk to him and see, feel it out. So I call, of course, you know, he's not there voicemail. So I hang up. It's not a push-button phone. And I call the front desk to have me uh, passed on to Human Resources to talk to Judy, who's the manager there, who's the mother of a surfing buddy of mine, actually. Good morning. This is Robert Ranky calling from overseas. How are you? The front desk woman answers the phone. She has this strong British accent. She's an immigrant. And I know that she is a person who's experienced change in her life. Uh, I'm in Europe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and I feel just comfortable just letting it out before I get connected to human resources. And I'm like, um, promise not to tell anybody. I'm in Milan. And I have to decide whether or not to come back to work tomorrow or fly back. Well, you know what I'm trying to do? I'll let you know. This is a very difficult decision. You have to help me, okay? I am I'm coming to Milan to try to be a model, okay? And I got signed by an agency. And I'm on vacation from work at Hewlett Packard, and my vacation ends tomorrow. So now I have to decide whether or not to quit or try to get a 20-day leave of absence or what. She goes, quit. Quit? You should quit. Yeah? Just do it, huh? Yeah? And forget about the 20-day leave of absence and all of that crap. Just say, hey, I got to quit. She goes, you know what? At the end of your life, you're going to reflect back and see, think about what are the things that you could have made happen. Or are you going to look back and say, what are the opportunities that I missed? Yeah. <laughs> you're beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. You know, you don't know how stressful this is to do. I mean, you get so trapped in a job and, and you feel like you're you're trapped for the rest of your life, you know? And I'm like, okay, well, I asked for a sign. She says quit, that's a sign. <laughs> I'm gonna I think I'll go for that. I'll quit. Okay, you've got it. <laughs> I'll send you a picture. All right. So that's a deal. I have her transfer me to human resources. I say send the last check to my mom. I call up Tiffany and say, please make payments on the Jeep. I call up the real estate agency. I say, please go ahead and rent this place. Neither of which ever happened and I ended up losing everything. But I did end up for the next five years working in Europe and the United States as a model. There was never a lot of money because the agencies did take 60%. I ended up living all over the world. I did end up in GQ and Details Magazine and ended up doing fashion shows like Hugo Boss, but uh, there was never a lot of money. The agencies took 60% and sometimes they actually didn't even pay. And there were sexual predators galore. And I started to have really fucked up sex with guys, still suffering from a great deal of internalized homophobia that, you know, I'd never really worked out and couldn't work out over the, the full-blown alcoholism and drug addiction I was 
going through. But slowly I started to confide in others that at first I was bisexual and then eventually gay. And uh, my concept of Christianity kind of expanded outside of the box that I had perceived it myself to be in with that. Two years after having quit my job with Hewlett Packard, I'm in Miami Beach with an agency still modeling Irene Marie. I'm doing cocaine and I'm drinking a lot of alcohol. And it's the height of the AIDS epidemic in America. More men will have died that year than ever. And I find myself on a dance floor, have my shirt off. I'm looking over the balcony and I see this sea of beautiful, beautiful people dancing. And some of these men, many of them had come from other cities and they were there to die. They were dancing to die because they wanted to go out happy. I felt this incredible heaviness, but also a sense of joy that these men were doing what they wanted to do. And I decided that, you know, I needed to, (laughs) I needed to get a boyfriend actually. (laughs) And uh, I got a boyfriend, Eric, who is an airplane pilot from France. And we moved to Denver, where I lived for a couple years and had to have an ear surgery because the ear was fucked up and I did nothing to it. So I had this horrific ear surgery that completely wiped me out and bankrupt me. And I had yet this last demon to slay, which is the alcoholism and drug addiction. And finally in 2001, you know, I hit a much, much lower worse bottom than I could have ever imagined. The helicopter, squad cars, stop in jail before rehab, but I was able to get sober and stay sober for 22 years now. Luckily, five years after that, that sobriety brought me my husband, the love of my life, who I married in 2014. And, you know, if you try to compare the person I was uh, back in 1991 with the person I am today, it's, it's just impossible. You know, I am not in any sort of box, and I'm infinitely more aware of who I am. And I'm happy with that person. Oh, and I'm happy that my husband has health insurance. (laughs) We'll be right back. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky 
co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. We're back. I have a teenager now. It's 2023. The world is full of distractions and all sorts of crazy brain food. I was a teenager his age, 1992. I grew up no television, no telephone, no electricity on the top of a mountain with a whole bunch of drunk hippies, good people, wonderful people, but who had tried to escape from the modern world onto the top of a mountain and raise their children. I had a swelling, itching brain that was really hungry for for things. I read the encyclopedia front to back, back to front. I drew, I listened to music until the batteries ran out. I was just a... um, Well, I was undiagnosed ADHD, I think, but I didn't know even what that was at that point. I just thought that's if you just run around all the time. And I didn't run around. I just, my brain was hungry. It was like a sponge that would never soak up all the way. So when I was a teenager, I was just surrounded with all sorts of self-entertaining things, dissociation and fantasy. And one day at the thrift meet, swap meet, the big pile of junk they would just load out of the back of a truck, I found a new typewriter, new to me, like it's a 70s manual typewriter, but I was feeling frustrated with my old typewriter. I think I probably just needed to change the ribbon, but I didn't know how. And so I bought the new typewriter. I took the old typewriter into a parking lot in town in the middle of the night, and I threw it up into the foggy cold night. It goes up, it comes down smash billion pieces i took some of the pieces and i put them on the dashboard of my car and i drove around like that for a long time not after like too long of driving around like that i was one day driving down the driveway from my parents house to go meet some friends and thinking about evolution and thinking about the weird dichotomy between the way that our intellectual capacities were expanding so rapidly. And mind you, this is before the internet hit. This is before cell phones hit. Like, even even cable TV felt like a crazy flood of information, but it just felt like our brains, because of the written word, because of communication, the ability to, you know, to talk to someone on the other side of the world, the ability to store and formalize all sorts of learning and ideas, etc. It felt like our brains were expanding. The capacities were just like fucking blowing up, right? Just wow, so amazing. I was feeling a lot of excitement. And then I thought about our soft and shitty bodies and how because of the way that evolution works that that our bodies were going to be forever forever behind forever like sadly chasing the gazelle of intellectual growth because bodies work with evolution making mutations successive series of mutations that find some sort of a biological advantage and they get self-selected for by surviving and reproducing anyways yeah our bodies suck you can be born like 
disadvantaged and malnourished and poorly taken care of and poorly educated and you can make your way to learn the fucking magic of the magics right you can have your 17 bazillion doctorates and you don't even need a doctorate like you could be born with no access to education with no access to anything intellectual and make your way in the world to be like a, a marvelously like autodidactic or college educated motherfucker, right? So you can have an incredible journey with your mind in a way that you can't with your body. I mean, you can get stronger, you can get limber, you can get, you can develop your balance, you can do all sorts of things with your body, but you can never, you know, be born the size of a human and end up, like, because you put in the hard work, you can never end up being like a hundred foot tall giant with incredible strength, right? This is what I was thinking about. I was thinking about how weird it is, how weird it is that you can be so transformative and so quickly iterate and grow and share growth with your fellow humans and take from other people's growth and stack on top of it. This is the short version of the story. <laughs> Anyways, so I was thinking about how frustrated I was by the limitations of, of my human body and of our human bodies, right? And I started thinking about, and this is all in the space of like, I've been driving down my parents' driveway for 45 seconds. Okay, so I started thinking about what what, 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 might, what, might, what might we do, right? Like, maybe we'll have giant exoskeletons that, like, you know, you move your finger and, like, a 50-foot-long metal finger moves the exact same way and it has, like, some sort of, like, uh, I didn't know the word then, but, like, haptic feedback. So when it touches something, you know you're touching something. You're not just, like, clenching around, smashing the world like a like a Godzilla, you know, maybe you can be sensitive and, and nuanced in your giant body. I'm thinking about, about giant bodies. I'm thinking about like, oh, you get into a thing and like, you know, you're harnessed in all these, all these ways. So it knows what you're doing and it can translate them to this impossibly huge scale. I'm thinking about that. And I, I see the typewriter pieces on the dashboard of the car and I take one in each hand and I use them. I'm thinking about, oh, wow, yeah, it's like, it's like extending your body. It's like extending the reach of your body in the way that, in, in the way that our minds can naturally extend their reach. What if our bodies can too, right? And so I'm, I, I take these pieces of metal from the chassis of my destroyed typewriter and I start using them to steer naturally. Like I put them through the steering wheel and I slow down, you know, I'm driving a little bit slower than I normally would down the driveway and I'm steering and it's going great, right? Like I can turn, I don't need to shift gears because I'm just staying in the low gear, you know, in the first gear all the way down the driveway because it's a very steep mountain driveway with drop-offs on both sides and, and you wanna be safe when you're driving with your robot arms. I was very entertained, this, this was, seemed really fun <laughs> like I was I was driving with my robot arms this is cool so I'm doing great and I'm coming up to this curve to the left I can see it really clearly because I drove down that driveway hundreds of thousands of times it's a gentle left turn and so I do my left turn I'm turning the steering wheel around to the left wheeling it but the tip of my robot arm it just catches on the turn signal and the turn signal will wand right behind the steering wheel. You know, I hadn't really thought about, about that when I was decided to be, you know, use my robot extenders. And so the turn signal, I'm turning left. It's I've turned the turn signal on, but I'm also, I can't go any further in my, uh, in the intensity of the strength of my, of my turn. And so I'm gently turning left, going around a slightly less gentle, 
curve to the left on this mountain road and to the right oh that's basically a sheer drop off down for hundreds of feet <laughs> oh goodness gracious but i'm committed i can't not drive with my robot arms and i didn't think maybe i'll put on the brake i just kind of just drove slowly off the side of the mountain and i felt the uh, the nose of the car tip down the ass of the car go up in the air and then gravity and so the car is is picking up momentum and i got so lucky there was a tree with just enough root structure just enough of like a healthy young trunk to hold the weight of my volvo smashed into it right right in the middle of the front grill bumper the ass end of the car it didn't pivot around and just keep me like plummeting and rolling down this down this cliff it just stopped and i was safe like i didn't bash my face on anything even wow okay and i open up my door and i crawl you know like grabbing at roots and vines and dirt and rocks to get back up to the to the road and i walk back up to my parents house and i called the tow truck and uh the tow truck came out and then he uses the winch, pulls the car up over the side of the road. The car does not complain. The car drives. The car was fine. I think I used it for five more years. And I was safe. And I told everybody I was looking for a cassette on the floor of the car for so long. I don't know how long. But then I came to really love the story because it is like a window into the way that my brain and my fantasy life works. And I love it. I love my squishy brain. Yeah, I do love it. I, I love, I love it. I love my brain. I love the way that I had to learn, had to learn, but did learn. The way that I survived those um, isolated and sort of like connection, information, attention deprived years by leaning into fantasy, dissociation, creativity. If the adults in my life drank to get away from their pain, I, I dreamt to get away from my pain. I fantasized. I just would get lost in my mind, in imagination. And I am grateful for that. I am guessing it's more interesting and entertaining and just like delightful than using drugs and alcohol to try to escape my pain. Even though I think I've tried that a little bit, but it just doesn't really work too great. And the heart of me just wants to deal with the crisis of life through dream and creativity and fantasy and making impossible things. When it happened, I don't think that I thought too much about the other ways that this could have gone. Like if that tree hadn't been there, what rolling down hundreds of <laughs> steep like a mountainside cliff does to a boy, you know? But things did change and led to a really dear and important part of how I work now, which is that I try to take all of my mortal risks, all of my big stupid swings at ideas, I try to take them in the safe place of creativity and not while driving. That's one of my most, most, most preciously dear and favorite things about art and music and any, anything else that's like a, a creative pursuit like that in, is that you can do the equivalent of trying to drive down a sheer driveway with robot arms and it's consequence free like you can fuck up the absolute absolute worst and nobody gets hurt you can wield wildly destructive or impulsive or 
unbalanced ideas and the worst thing that happens is that your piece of art doesn't come out the way you want it or that you make a mess that you have to clean up you know oh i got paint on the i got paint on the horse whereas like applying the same sort of ideas to maybe more like meat space life physical life you could really make a mess of it you can you could hurt yourself or other people you can end your life so easily that's something that makes art and the process of art and the reality of art one of the most precious things in the world of being alive to me Whatever the equivalent of driving with robot arms is, I'm still doing it. I'm still trying to do it on the daily. I'm still trying to get in as much stupid trouble as I can, but I'm doing it in the space of creativity. Like, for example, what risk this is rafter behind me now and we just heard a story by rafter and i'm now recording with rafter say hello sir hello sir (laughs) i'm rafter hi kevin i love you i love you i love you thank you you're very agreeable (laughs) (laughs) no i'm not (laughs) fuck you (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I agree. I agree. Absolutely. Thank goodness. (laughs) You can edit this out if it's too much, but I just like, I feel like such a a huge debt to the work that you all have done. And I think it's not just me. It's a beautiful and important thing that you put in the world. I'm just like, ugh, verklempt. Is that the thing (laughs) that people say if they say verklempt? Yeah, that is what they say when they say verklempt. Kevin, it's it's bonkers. I mean, Risk has touched me in so many inappropriate ways, um, and I love it, and I live for it. But you, in particular, sparked a line of inquiry in my in my life that has transformed it pretty radically, and that's discovering and the subsequent journey of a lifetime of ADHD. Oh. When you shared some stuff about how you had come to an adult diagnosis of ADHD and that looking back at your life and patterns, things that you'd struggled with, things that you'd excelled at, things that, you know, just like all sorts of, like, uh, I found myself identifying with so much of what you shared and looked into it myself and like, it was just like, oh, oh. Oh, you know, (laughs) my life has changed wildly since then. And so I just, I wanted to just thank you for being like, um, for sharing what you went through with that 
because it, yeah, it, it opened the doors for me to have a much deeper and more like effective understanding of the way I work and my life. Oh, that's so amazing. Thank you so much for saying that. And you know, it was a risk listener who wrote into me. No saying, way. Yeah, saying, your stories sound like you have ADHD. Don't you think you do? And at the very moment that I was reading that, I, I was texting with a college friend of mine, my friend Smith, that I've known for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is funny. This risk listener just wrote, you know, you, you don't seem to know you have ADHD. And Smith texted back, you don't know that? <laughs> 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 I thought, oh shit, I'm being called out here. So that's when I went to the doctor. So yeah, it's amazing how risk is this place where people can open up about things that they really have no idea how they might connect with others about. Yeah, no, totally. It has a, I think it has a lot of overlap with a recovery kind of environments. Mm, um, yeah. You know, like just like the sort of sharing that you'll get to in a in a recovery meeting can be really just so much more unguarded and real than things that you might just be like shooting the shit with your friends about, you know? Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of like deflecting with humor or, uh, you know, or, or just kind of skirting around things where maybe like, because... I go to uh, ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics, because a lot of my uh, childhood wounding was from growing up around so much uh, alcoholism and drug abuse, you know? And the relationships and, and stuff in there reminds me so much of, a, of a, something like Risk, because even though Risk is longer format than like a sh short shares, you're having people just say the truth. Yeah. Or try to. <laughs> it's <laughs> so profound. No, that means a lot to hear. Yeah, so, you, so it's your fault I'm on drugs. <laughs> but, but just like even beyond medication just like the whole thing of just like of of learning um just about how to lean into like the strengths that we have yeah and to not drag ourselves so hard for the weaknesses oh yeah compassion for yourself is is yeah so, so thanks because you like just like share, putting that out there and sharing it. Like at least, and for me, I can only imagine it probably hit some other people in some interesting ways too. Yeah, it's just like um, my 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 marriage is improved. Mm. Like my parenting is improved. <laughs> my business life is improved. My self esteem is improved. Like it's hit, hit in so many awesome ways to just like have some compassion for myself and the way that, and understand that maybe I'm not a space alien. Maybe I mm. am a space alien, but maybe I'm a space alien human with with a lot in common with a lot of people. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's what and yeah. So it's, it's, That's it's awesome. I just, I'm really grateful. Yeah, I'm grateful for you sharing that and for writing a new theme song for us. I'm so thrilled. We love it. And I hope it has a big, bright future, <laughs> provided we find a way to pay our staff another year. Yay. <laughs> me too. Me too. My life depends on it. <laughs> 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 And folks, not only is there so much amazing Rafter music on this episode, but you can find a lot more at rafter.bandcamp.com. And if you are a musician listening to this episode and you want to cover Rafter's new Risk opening theme song or remix it or do whatever to it, 
Stay tuned because we're going to have instructions for folks on future episodes as how to do that. Now, let's get to another one of our fresh starts here, also known as Frarts. <laughs> we're about to hear from Vicki Uditz, who has been on Everybody Loves Raymond and Coach. Vicki recorded this with us at a Risk Live show in Los Angeles earlier this year, and it's a story we call At Home. Growing up in rural Pennsylvania, New York City was the promised land. I had been there. Tall buildings, museums, theaters, the village. The second I graduated from my racist, homophobic, Ronald Reagan worshiping college in Pennsylvania, I moved straight to New York City, to the village, to be an actress, of course. Because at my college, the only thing I could stand was, you know, acting in the plays there. I was able to carve out a little niche for myself in New York City, playing funny parts in television commercials. And I had a whole closet full of wigs and glasses and costumes. And on the side, I would do a little off-off-Broadway show or take a class, but it was the commercials that were my living, and I was actually able, you could never do this now, but in the 80s, I was actually able to purchase a tiny apartment in the village. Oh my God, right? At 29, I had a mortgage, <laughs> but I, I did not have a husband. Uh, so I was taking this class, a groundlings class in New York, and I was dating this guy, and he got suddenly a staff job on a sitcom in Hollywood. And he asked me to join him. Now, I dated a lot of people. They had never asked me to go anywhere. Now, was it, was it, was it my upbringing? Was it society? Was it my insecurity that convinced me to give up everything I had for a shot at getting married? Yes. Absolutely yes. Uh, 29 was my last chance. So I rented out the apartment, and I packed up a couple suitcases, and I went to Hollywood. I moved in with a guy. I rented a car. I got an appointment with an agent. Now, I had not driven in many, many, many years, and I, I couldn't really bring myself to get on the freeway, but I was able to get around. And I met with the agent, and they said, oh, you have a lot of things running, but you know, out here, it's all cars and perfume and models, and you will barely work. <laughs> and the boyfriend, he was working on this job for this uh, very eccentric, well-known showrunner who kept everybody there till like, you know, two, three in the morning and weekends. And after I was here for a couple weeks, I was, I was feeling really, really down. And so I decided to do something really radical that people didn't do. I decided to take a walk. I had a walk and I will lift my spirits as I would in New York City. So uh, we were living there on a little apartment on Beachwood Canyon. So in 1989, I thought, I'm going to walk to Hollywood Boulevard, and I know there'll be like theaters there, and boutiques, and, and souvenir shops. There were porn, porn theaters, and uh, there were stripper boutiques, and there was one souvenir shop. I was looking through a guidebook, 
And I found this place, and they said it was kind of like New York. It was called Downtown. <laughs> and in this downtown, there were tall buildings, and there were museums, and there were real theaters, yes! So uh, bright and early on a Saturday morning, I hopped in my rented hot turquoise Geo Metro, <laughs> guidebook in hand, and I headed for downtown, didn't go on the freeway, of course, because I had not driven in like 10 years, so I had to go on Beverly, like east along Beverly, a little further east and south. And south. Oh, yes, there were the tall buildings now. I had circled a couple of things in my, my guidebook, and I thought, okay, first I will go by the theater district, the Taper, the Chandler. I turned onto Grand Avenue, and I, didn't, I didn't, didn't see the theaters. I looked up, oh, were they up there? up on top of that enormous block of concrete? Like, how would anyone get there? And then the street was suddenly one way. I couldn't even go back. I would just continue to the second place that I had circled in my book. MoCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art. There it was, up ahead on the left. Oh, plenty of parking. Mine was the only car a long line of empty meters on that wide, deserted street. I stepped out of my car into an eerie, disturbing silence. MoCA, said my guidebook, is a dazzling fusion of Western geometry and the Eastern tradition of solid and void. How true. Outside, the museum was an arrangement of stacked geometric shapes, boxes, pyramids. Inside... Nothing but empty space. No exhibits and no visitors. We're closed for renovation, said the guard. I went back to my car. There was a, this was not going the way I planned. The blue California sky was beginning to turn gray. I was getting cold. I'm just going to try to get around the block and, and get back to Beverly. But the streets were all one way, the wrong way. No GPS back in 1989. And the only little map I had was in that tiny little guidebook. I thought, oh, I, I was completely lost. I thought, will I ever get out of downtown? And then just like that, I was out. No more tall buildings, but instead low cinder block houses. Their dirt yards filled with tires, rusting cardboards, and wild yapping dogs. I turned left. I turned right, barreling along those colorless streets in my loud turquoise car. Oh, how I wished I were back in Manhattan. Where people walk. You can never get lost. It's just a skinny little island. You just go to your hit water. You're never alone. There are always people on the street. This place was a wasteland. I turned on the South Bonnie Brick. A house appeared. Did anyone ever see that old musical, Brigadoon? And Brigadoon, there's an entire village that just appears out of nowhere, like every hundred years in the fog. That was like this, that was like this. All of a sudden, it wasn't there, it was there. That house was there. It was an incredible Victorian mansion, painted up in all shades of green. Her gingerbread trim was done in hot pink. She sat on an emerald green lawn, surrounded by beds of pink flowers and a high wrought iron fence. And then I saw a sign on the grass, Greer Musser Museum. I found the museum, yes. Okay, so I parked my car and I thumbed through the guidebook. Strange, no mention of any Greer Musser Museum. No matter. I got out of my car. I went up to the gate in the fence. There was a buzzer. I pressed it. No response. Tried again. Still nothing. I was about to turn away when I saw the cellar doors beginning to open. They were that kind constructed on a 45-degree angle that opened like trapdoors. A little man popped out. He was wearing a red corduroy vest, and he was bald, except for some tufts of white hair sprouting out from behind his ears. He looked like a big, fat, white mouse. <laughs> Hello, I called out. Poor thing jumped a foot in the air. 
Are you open? He just stared at me. I thought maybe I could take a tour. Oh, a tour? He came rushing over to the gate. He unlocked the padlock. He pulled open the gate. I stepped onto the grass. He said, people call me John. That's my name, John. John locked the gate behind us. He gestured at the house. He said, this is the exterior. Any questions? <laughs> Before I could say a word, he bounded across the grass and up the steps. He was unlocking the front door. I hurried after him, and I stepped into the dim foyer. John locked the door behind us. As my eyes adjusted to the murky light, I saw next to me, sitting on a brocade love seat, the Easter Bunny, a human-sized stuffed white rabbit. John opened the door to the left. He said, this is the parlor. That room was stuffed with rabbits. Plastic, fur, cloth, plastic. They were sitting or sleeping or frozen in mid-hop on the Victorian sofas, tables, chairs. We decorate fully for every holiday. Now it's Easter. Then we'll do Mother's Day. We celebrate all the president's birthdays. All the presidents? Wouldn't want anyone to feel left out. Any questions? He was already across the hall, opening the door to the dining room, where the huge table was set for tea with tiny little cups and plates and saucers. Dolls sat in the dining room chairs wearing flowered Easter bonnets. At each place setting, there was a pink hard-boiled egg and several carrots. John hurried over to a box next to the wall, and he started working a crank to one side of it. And there was a portrait above that box of a man who looked vaguely familiar. I realized he looked a lot like John. A man's tinny tenor voice burst out of the box, warbling opera in Italian. This is the original Victor talking machine. Any questions? Oh, yes, I had a few. (laughs) Was that John in the picture? Was this John's house? What kind of museum was this? Anyway, I was beginning to feel very uncomfortable. Locked up alone in this big house with John. Nobody knew where I was. No cell phones back then. He was halfway up the steps of the second floor. I followed him into the roaring 20s. Feather boas, movie posters, chaise lounges adorned the master bedroom. And of course, there were plenty of bunny decorations. And I said, this is an entirely different time period from downstairs. The girls love a movie. Girls? What? (laughs) I followed John into the next bedroom, where the furnishings were completely modern. Contemporary women's clothing was draped on the bed, on the chairs. He opened the door to a small closet. The ladies love the sewing room. I stood in that closet, staring at bobbins, embroidery hoops, bowls of thread, and I thought, this is really weird. This guy's really off. He... This guy lures women to this house, <clears throat> to this closet. He locks them in, starves them to death, and then their effects become part of the collection. <laughs> I heard the door creak behind me. I whirled around, throwing my weight against the door. John was not standing there until I crashed into the wall. I startled John, who was standing across the room at the window. I said, is this your house? No. It was my brother's house. He's passed now. He bought it for his wife and daughters. They love to collect things. Well, where are they now? The wife, the daughters. They're out shopping. How did you come to be giving tours here? Well, I was living in Pittsburgh. And my wife passed, I got very depressed, and the girls said, why don't you come out? Give a tour. I'm from the East Coast. I'm very depressed. Want to see my slides? 
I love New York. New York! We rushed down two flights of stairs to the basement, and John had benches and a projector set up facing a tattered screen. I sat down on a bench. He turned on the projector. He turned off the lights. And there was New York City, the Chrysler Building, the Statue of Liberty, the Empire State. Far off, I could hear thunder, rain coming down. But in the basement of that pink and green house, it was warm and sunny. And we were visiting all the New York City tourist attractions I loved. And I knew I could carry these images with me and always feel at home. I did marry the boyfriend. I did learn to drive on the freeway. I did a couple of commercials and I became a storyteller. And this past Saturday, I visited the Greer Musser Museum <laughs> for the first time since that long ago visit. It looks pretty much the same. John, of course, has passed away. And my guide was one of the girls, Susan. Uh, Susan's parents actually bought the house. They were doctors, 1984, and they never lived there. They just filled it with the things they loved. And it is so full now. There's so much furniture, so many collectibles. You can barely sit. You can barely walk. And it was decorated for Halloween. I love this so much. And Susan would clap her hands and a spider would go up and down. Or a vampire would yell. Or, or a crystal ball would light up. Susan and I talked about the things we love. The L.A. tourist attractions. The Huntington Lucky Baldwin's house. The Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And so, once again, I felt at home. This is Risk. This is Rafter one last time behind me now. His new album, Free Will, is at rafter.bandcamp.com. And we just heard from Vicki Uditz, who you can find on Twitter and Instagram at Vicki Uditz. Now, folks, we've been focused on fresh starts this whole episode. But before we turn the page on the calendar for a brand spanking new year, there's one last chance to see Risk live in 2023, and it's in Los Angeles at the Lyric Hyperion. It's Tuesday, December 19th at 7.30 p.m. If you're anywhere near L.A., come on out on December 19th. The tickets are at risk-show.com 
slash live. We'll be right back. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. We're back. Folks, on Thursday, we're revisiting one of the all-time classic risk stories. Just last week, someone was randomly telling me it was the risk story that changed their life in a great way. It's the story called Life Worth Living by Nancy Sullivan about childhood sexual abuse. And then we'll include some of a conversation that Nancy had about the story with Cindy Nielsen, a licensed professional counselor. So that will be fascinating. But that's Thursday and folks, Today's the day. Take a risk. risk. I'm so fucking tired of hot dogs. So I started thinking about what, 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 might, what, might, what might we do, right? Whipped cream, hairspray, styrofoam, and jello. Your brain is three pounds of jello. I would be a, a pile of jello. <laughs> <laughs> we need a new, we need a whole new image, you know? We need like we need a new theme song. Women look over my shoulder. What do you think I see? Some other cat looking over. All right, man.